James chapter 5 is the end of the epistle from James. And to end his epistle, James discusses the second coming of the Lord. In verse 8, he says that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And in verse 9, tells us that the judge standeth before the door. He seems to build the rest of the chapter around these statements, giving us a specific direction on how to prepare for this inevitable coming. And there are distinct sections in this chapter. The first spans from verses 1 to 6 and discusses riches in depth. Then uh, there's another section that goes from verses, starts in verse 7 and uh, goes to verse 9 and, and talks about the need for patience. <clears throat> then we have a section, verses 10, 11, and 12, that talk about the need for enduring affliction. We then, um, in verse 13, have information about how best to administer to others who are sick and also a little bit about general ministering and bearing one another's burdens and then to end the chapter in verse uh, in verse 19 and 20 James talks about um, spreading the gospel uh, there's also this amazing little section in verses 16, 17, and 18 about the efficacy of prayer. So first, it's the context of prayer is uh, has more to do with um, with with a priesthood blessing, but then we get that in 16, 17, and 18. So I'll come back to each of these sections. Starting in verse 1, we're going to talk um, in some depth about the the canker and the um, he uses the word cankered in verse 3 the cankered uh, uh, of, of your gold and silver but that the cankering that it can have upon your soul is the um, is the extension of that idea and James says in verse 1 go to now ye rich men weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you to have the rich who are the very opposite of those who are on the margins of society and who are in a state of want. Um, they they are they are in the in the very opposite position of those uh, who would be made to weep and to howl. So this suggests that there would be a time in the future when the rich uh, do a complete one eighty and are in maybe even something like a role reversal. Uh, the most dramatic example of a role reversal of this type is captured in the 16th chapter of Luke, uh, where the Savior gives a parable about a rich man and his interactions with a beggar named Lazarus. Here's this episode. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, 
and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So there is a complete role reversal. And I think that's what James is driving at here too, is that this weeping and howling is something that's hard to imagine for the rich, but that day uh, will come for those who have put all of their love towards their money. Uh, it, it also reminds me a little bit <clears throat> of the time uh, when so much destruction happens in Third Nephi before the Savior comes. And there's this expression where the people say, Oh, that we had repented. Well, James goes on <clears throat> in verse 2, saying that your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as if it were, as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days, saying that the only thing you have heaped together for the last days, instead of preparing appropriately, was treasure. And guess what that treasure has done for you? Well, it is corrupted. Your expensive garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And there's rust. This reminds me of a statement that Elder Maxwell once made, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it, uh, where he said that the things that we tend to put ahead of the Lord and his kingdom. So that could be riches, it could be material things, and it also could be other priorities in life. But anything that we put ahead of the Lord and his kingdom are precisely the same things that will keep us from the Lord and his kingdom. And that's something to really think about because the hour will come when there's nothing we want more, uh, just like this rich man in Lazarus, than to be uh, brought into Abraham's bosom, so to speak, and to be accepted into the Lord's kingdom. And so those riches, those things that kept us from him, are the things that ultimately we would end up resenting. Very thought-provoking point. Verse 4 says, and verse 4 outlines a slightly different sin associated with the accumulation of wealth. It says, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have, have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, suggesting that uh, wages, appropriate wages, are not paid to the employees that work for those that can pay. Uh, the sab Sabbath, Sabbath uh, is Hebrew for hosts. Uh, so that's another way of saying ears of the Lord of hosts. Then the third offense associated with riches, which is to, to live in a luxurious and a self-indulgent lifestyle, is outlined in verse 5, saying, Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth, and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Um, the Weymouth translation uses the word murdered in verse 6. You have murdered the just, and they don't resist you. It's a way of saying that you've steamrolled them, 
those who are who are the dispossessed and on the margins of society who couldn't resist you if they tried you have steamrolled them you've killed them uh, by not caring for them appropriately well there's the first warning there's the first category of thing that we must do to prepare for the coming of the Lord and of course this is the final extension of a thread that has been uh, moving throughout the epistle of James and that's the last that he has to say about worldly wealth now he tells us a bit about patience we've talked about those who ought to fear the coming of the Lord in these verses 1 through 6 uh, now James is speaking more, I think, to those who really would love to have him come. They're ready for him to come, and they love him. He says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And then he, he creates this image, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. There's a, a restatement of this verse by Bruce R. McConkie that's helpful for understanding what it is that James is saying. He says, Our Lord's return is like the planting and harvesting of crops by an husbandman. The seeds are so sown at his first coming and are watered by the early rains so that they sprout and take root. Then after a long wait, attended by much patience and endurance on the part of the saints, Amid the latter rains, the rains that ripen the harvest, he comes again to pluck the fruit of his vineyard and to reign on earth a thousand years with those who have kept the faith. The early rain fell at sowing time. The latter rain came to mature the crop for harvest. Thus the heavens rained righteousness when our Lord ministered among mortal men in time's meridian. And also there shall be a great day of revelation, refresh, refreshment, and restoration when truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven which is um, that's coming from Psalm 85 um, and then he says that that will be incident to the second coming uh, that's from doctrinal New Testament commentary by Elder McConkie then we have these two statements that I pointed out at the beginning of this um, reading which are in verses 8 and 9 and get right to the heart of the matter be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Verse 9, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. And James has had plenty to say previously about grudging not one against another, just in the previous chapter. But this image of the Lord uh, standing at the door, or the judge standing at the door, that sounds a lot like Revelations uh chapter 3 verse 20 where he says behold I stand at the door and knock it's also reminiscent of the Savior's words uh, during his Olivet discourse and this is in Matthew 24 as he's talking about the coming of the Lord and he says now learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves ye know that summer is nigh and that sounds a little bit like the early and latter rains. And then says this, So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. So there's that mention of a door again. That's quite a phrase. The judge standeth before the door, says James. Then James um, changes the subject slightly. 
And uh, I mean, he's, this is still an extension of his admonition to be patient. But he talks more specifically about affliction and suffering and using prophets as an example. In verse 10, he says, Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Then in verse 11, he says, Behold, we count them happy which endure, uh, which is yet one more great one-liner from the epistle of James. We count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Well, the patience of Job. Job certainly sets a scriptural standard for one who is um, has ultimate patience. And we know that Joseph Smith was um, compared to Job in section 121 when he was uh, writing his own epistle in the Liberty Jail. When the Lord told him, Thou art not yet as Job. And then we have this phrase at the end of the verse, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And this phrase, tender mercy, is one that, that is um, it's beloved of, as members of the church and seems to have been brought to our attention, particularly during the apostolic ministry of Elder Bednar. And he loves to, or or I should I should speak in past tense. He he loved bringing that uh, out in his. In, it may have been one of his first talks when he was an apostle. And uh, Nephi refers to tender mercies in the plural at the very end of the first chapter of First Nephi. Uh, speaking of Joseph Smith and the suffering of prophets and enduring. And uh, those who are happy from who who which endure. Uh, here's um, here's a tribute that uh, Elder Robert D. Hales wrote of Joseph Smith. He said, "In our dispensation, the prophet Joseph Smith endured all manner of opposition and hardship to bring to pass the desire of our heavenly Father, the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Joseph was harassed and hunted by ang angry mobs." He patiently endured poverty, humiliating charges, and unkind acts. His people were forcibly driven from town to town, from state to state. He was tarred and feathered. He was falsely charged and jailed. Joseph knew that if he were to stop going forward with this great work, his earthly trials would probably ease. But he could not stop because he knew who he was. He knew for what purpose he was placed on the earth and he had the desire to do God's will. Well, verse 12 almost seems like a standalone verse or a standalone concept. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. And I've puzzled over why this verse would be here and, and how it fits into the context of this chapter. I'm not sure exactly, but maybe because of our tendency to, to swear or utter oaths or to speculate or to judge when we uh, uh, don't have a definitive knowledge of when the Lord will come, maybe that's the context there. Not sure. Then James changes the subject. Truly, this time, in verse 13, 
and says the following, Is any sick among you? Is any among you afflicted? He says. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a slip because I'm thinking about that beautiful phrase in 3 Nephi 17.7. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, really. So I'm just going to point it out now. Um, when the resurrected Savior says, Have ye any that are sick among you? Bring them hither. Have ye any that are lame or blind or halt or maimed or leprous or that are withered or that are deaf or that are afflicted in any manner? Bring them hither and I will heal them for I have compassion upon you. My bowels are filled with mercy. This, I think, reflects the core desire of the Savior to draw us to him and to, to heal us. And I think this is coming straight from him through his servant, James. When James says then, in verse 13, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Now, before coming back to this concept of uh, praying over and blessing those who are afflicted, he, he says this, Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So that, that short aside about him being merry and singing psalms is, is kind of an interesting inclusion. And then we go back to this subject of those who would be sick and who could be administered to by the elders of the church and we see this pattern of, of them being anointed with oil, which is, I think, a remarkable thing to consider that that's done to those who are sick because the precedent for that in the Old Testament is that you would anoint someone to be king. So it's a, it's a very beautiful gesture and is somehow connected with that. Then we have this statement again in verse 15, The Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So there is a dual blessing at play uh, that involves the healing of a physical malady and the forgiveness of sins. This should remind one of an episode that had to do with a man who was lowered through the roof. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 9. And after the Savior heals this man, he says, For whether it is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. So he's, he's speaking to some antagonistic Pharisees, while at the same time, uh, it actually says scribes, but but at the same time, he's healing this man and talking <clears throat> about the same thing James is here, a, a dual blessing of uh, curing a malady and forgiving the sin. Bruce R. McConkie had something to say about that. He said, The person who by faith, devotion, righteousness, and personal worthiness is in a position to be healed is also in a position to have the justifying approval of the Spirit for his course of life and his sins are forgiven him, as witnessed by the fact that he receives the companionship of the Spirit, which he could not have if he were unworthy. 
Then uh, verse 16 extends this thought farther by saying, Confess your faults one to another. And then pray one for another that ye may be healed. Now we're broadening this a little bit to talk about prayer more generally and using Elijah as an example. And James says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Using Elijah as an example, he says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, this would remind one of Nephi in, in Helaman chapter 10 when he's told that thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will, as the Lord tells Nephi that. And, and Nephi goes on, to use the sealing power to shut the heavens and then, then later to open them back up. Before moving on to this last segment, I, I neglected to read some commentary by Elder Oaks that uh, expands on, uh, on this, this precedent that is set by James in having elders um, administer to the sick. He says, When someone has been anointed by the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood, the anointing is sealed by that same authority. To seal something means to affirm it, to make it binding for its intended purpose. When elders anoint a sick person and seal the anointing, they open the windows of heaven for the Lord to pour forth the blessing he wills for the person afflicted. President Brigham Young taught, When I lay hands on the sick, I expect the healing power and influence of God to pass through me to the patient and the disease to give way. When we are prepared, when we are holy vessels before the Lord, a stream of power from the Almighty can pass through the tabernacle of the administrator to the system of the patient and the sick are made whole. James ends this chapter then by telling us something very, very encouraging and very interesting. He says, brethren, in verse 19, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. So we talked about a dual blessing a moment ago. Here's a different dual blessing, where he who is converted is hidden from a multitude of sins, as it says, uh, because he... he uh, is, is subject to the cleansing power of the atonement. Um, but also, this same statement suggests that the person who converteth the sinner can have a multitude of his, his sins hidden. So it can be read either way. Um, there's evidence of this um, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 61 which says, For I will forgive you of your sins with this commandment, that you remain steadfastness in your minds, in solemnity and the spirit of prayer, in bearing testimony to all the world of those things which are communicated unto you. So I will forgive you of your sins with this commandment, that you remain steadfastness in your minds, uh, in bearing testimony to the world of those things. Uh, <clears throat> President Kimball said, the Lord has told us that our sins will be more forgiven, or will be forgiven more readily, 
as we bring souls unto Christ and remain steadfast in bearing testimony to the world. And surely every one of us is looking for additional help in being forgiven of our sins. In one of the greatest missionary scriptures, section 4 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we are told that if we serve the Lord in missionary service with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, then we may stand blameless before God at the last day. This uh, concept and this hope that we all have to stand blameless before God at the last day is uh, com comes right to the essence, I think, of what James is trying to teach in this chapter and, in fact, what he's really trying to teach throughout the entire epistle is that we might be in such a state 